during this time, federal marshals were out and about arresting members of the church for practicing plural marriage. So the members of the Quorum of the Twelve were among many people who were in hiding. And when John Taylor died, many of them could not even attend his funeral because they were at risk of arrest. Hello and welcome to Saints. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing Chapter 36, The Weak Things of the World. We're very excited to welcome Angela Hallstrom today with us. She is a writer and literary editor for Saints. Welcome, Angela. I am glad to be here. Thank you for joining us again. We loved having you on in Saints Season 1, and we're happy to have you back for Saints Season 2. In this chapter of Saints, we have the death of a president of the church. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about what this time was like for the saints and why his death and funeral might be a little bit different than what we would expect? Yes, it was a very difficult time. During this time, federal marshals were out and about arresting members of the church for practicing plural marriage. So the members of the Quorum of the Twelve were among many people who were in hiding and had to find themselves trying to run the church, essentially, without being able to gather together as a quorum. And when John Taylor died, many of them could not even attend his funeral because they were at risk of arrest. And so Wilford Woodruff was among those who had to watch the funeral from a window, watch the funeral procession going by because he could not publicly be there to pay his respects. It feels so strange to me, and I, I'm trying not to have presentism, mm -hmm. but it just feels so strange that an apostle would not be able to go to the funeral yes. of a president of the church. And further in this chapter, we learn that Phoebe Woodruff passes away. Mm -hmm. And to me, Phoebe and Wilford are kind of like the John and Abigail Adams of the church. Yes. They just love each other, and they have these wonderful letters, and they're so much a couple. They're like a unit. And it just hurt to know that he couldn't even attend his own wife's funeral. No, he couldn't attend her funeral either. And at this time, so after the death of John Taylor, there's another period of time where we don't have a first presidency. Yes. So Wilfred Woodruff is the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So can you tell us more about this time and just what's happening in the Quorum of the Twelve that's not allowing them to have a first presidency? Well, with the two previous reorganizations that came when Brigham Young and John Taylor became presidents of the church, there was also a delay in establishing a first presidency. So I think originally Wilford didn't feel like he was in a big hurry to establish a first presidency and that the Quorum of the Twelve could function and lead the church just fine. However, there were some issues among certain members of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time, a little bit of discord. And I think Part of the reason that that was happening was because they had been separated from each other for so long. And communication is very difficult when you're separated in that way, and so many of them were in hiding. There were some younger apostles who had recently joined the quorum in the last 10 years or so, who sometimes had personality conflicts or other questions about George Q. Cannon and how he was operating as a member of the First Presidency. And part of it, I think, was because as John Taylor was ailing, George Q. Cannon was required to make a lot of decisions 
in his stead because he was sick. So there were some members of the Quorum of the Twelve who felt like they should have been more involved in some of the decision-making. And then there were some personal and business matters also going on with George Q. Cannon. He had a strong personality. And as a writer on this project, one of the things that I enjoy is that you get to spend a lot of time in the sources. So I got to spend a lot of time reading George Q. Cannon's journals, which are available online, by the way. Yeah, we should mention that. So you can go to churchhistorianspress.org slash George-Q-Cannon, or you can just type in churchhistorianspress.org and click on the link on the homepage there. But you can read the entirety of his two and a half million word journal. It's an amazing thing. And this whole episode of the discord between Moses Thatcher and Heber J. Grant and others It's all there in living color in George's journal. But one of the things that I found is that I really came to appreciate George Q. Cannon through his journals. He is a fascinating man with an extremely strong personality. And I think you find that sometimes when people are very talented and very intelligent and very passionate, and he was that kind of a man. And so I think that there were some issues that some of them needed to work through. And Wilford, he had more of a temperament of a peacemaker And he had a lot of patience and wanting the apostles to organically come to a place where they could move past some of these questions. And they ultimately do. But Wilford had to be patient to kind of help them work through this difficult time. As they're coming to resolution between each other and the quorum, there's a meeting before general conference to kind of put this all to rest. Can you tell us a little bit about that meeting? Well, during that meeting, it was an opportunity for, and there were a few different meetings actually, but I think the one you're referring to that's in the text, because this took a a year or two of meetings for them to work through. But essentially, it was an opportunity for them to try to apologize to one another, to be able to clear the air. And during that time, Wilford Woodruff talked about how he had worked under prophets, that he respected them and felt that they were amazing leaders and that they were called of God, but he also saw that they had faults and frailties just like any other human being. And he stressed that that it was important that all the members of the quorum treat each other with that same kind of love and respect and allowance for the fact that no one is perfect and to be able to forgive and, and come together. So here we are in the late 1880s, and the book takes us to Samoa, and we learn about someone named Samuela Manoa. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about him and why he's significant? Yes, his story is so interesting. So in Samoa, he was one of the original two missionaries who was sent to Samoa, along with a man named um, Kimo Bellio. I, I think that's how you pronounce it. But interestingly, they were sent to Samoa by Walter Murray Gibson. Who, oh, we remember. Good old Walter Murray Gibson. <laughs> oh, um, he ended up fraudulently asserting authority in Hawaii in the 1860s. And during that time, he spread misinformation and caused a lot of problems. And one of the things that he told some of the members was that the United States government had destroyed the church in Utah and that he had authority to now lead the church. And so he sent Samuela and Kimo on a mission to Samoa without anyone at church headquarters knowing that he had done that. He'd done it on his own. 
So the two of them, you know, believing that this call was legitimate, they did not know about his fraud at this time. They went to Samoa and they started preaching the gospel. They found some great success early on, baptized around 50 people, and were waiting and hoping for other missionaries to come because they assumed that more would come, and they didn't come, and they didn't come. Now, they did communicate with the saints in Hawaii very occasionally, but the mail was extremely unreliable back and forth to Samoa. So they soon learned that Walter Murray Gibson had been excommunicated. They did learn about the fraud, but other communication was hard. So they were essentially kind of left on their own, and the congregation started to dwindle. Eventually, Kimo passed away, and Samuela was kind of left to try to help the remaining saints on the island, and he had always prayed and hoped that missionaries would come. So when this chapter starts, it's been 25 years. And so he just made a life for himself in Samoa. He started a business. He was actually very successful, got married, had kids, just settled. And people knew him as the Latter-day Saint from Hawaii. But I can't imagine how discouraging and confusing he would be. And yet he was faithful to the extent that he could be receiving no direction, no communication. That's incredible. And and did his best to try to keep everyone together. So this scene starts essentially with a big ship that was coming into the harbor there, and there were a lot of reefs that you needed to navigate through. So he would go out in his boat and help the ship captain navigate through the reefs. So he goes to help the ship captain, and the captain invites him to have some breakfast. This is such a cool part of the story. And while he's eating the breakfast, he looks down and there was some newspaper burning because they'd made a fire to, to warm the breakfast. And he sees, and he can read a little bit of English, and sees the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and that it's in California, that they're having a conference. And he grabs the newspaper out of the fire and puts out the fire and is like, this is my church. Like, it's not destroyed in the United States. And he'd always kind of suspected that that wasn't true, but he hadn't had any luck in communicating with Salt Lake City or the United States. So he ends up writing a letter and sends it and says, please, please send missionaries to Samoa. And eventually they do. They send Joseph Dean and Florence Dean are called to the Pacific, and they go, and there begins to be success. And if we have any listeners listening to us today from Samoa or of Samoan ancestry, the church has something close to 25% of people in Samoa are members of the church. So there is an incredible legacy that happens from this man and his faith, and and of course, many, many others who participated in missionary work and joined the church and have Mm -hmm. been faithful for generations on the islands of the sea. Yes. And he continues to be helpful. So there's a man named Joseph Dean and his wife, Florence, who are called to be missionaries in Hawaii. But when they were set apart, and this was right around the same time that Samuela was writing his letter, they were told to also try to take the gospel to Samoa. So when Joseph and Florence got to Hawaii, the letter that Samuela had sent had been sent to Salt Lake, and then they had rerouted it back to Hawaii. And the mission president had filed it away. And Joseph came across it and said, well, let's go to Samoa, which was quite an undertaking because his wife at that point, so just really quickly with Joseph Dean, he's a character that will continue throughout the rest of the end of the book. He helps build the Salt Lake Temple as well, so he will come back. But one of the reasons he's in Samoa and in Hawaii is because he had previously served a mission in Hawaii, but he had been arrested for unlawful cohabitation and was trying to avoid being arrested again. So he and his second wife, Florence, were there on their mission. But she 
became pregnant while she was there. And so when they decided to go to Samoa, she had a little four-month-old baby. And they are heading out in a boat. And Samuela has now corresponded with them and basically says, come find me and I will help you in any way I can. You can live in my house. We can start this all up together. So they get in a boat and basically head out not knowing anything other than there's this one man who has written to us and has said that he will help us. Let's listen to a quote here from the book that talks about the faith of these people and a prophecy that is made. Filled with hopeful enthusiasm, Joseph wrote to Wilfred Woodruff on July 7th to share his family's experience. I felt to prophesy in the name of the Lord that thousands of the people would embrace the truth, he reported. That is my testimony today, and I believe I shall live to see it fulfilled. What a great amount of faith and vision, really, that they could see that these people in Samoa were going to become such a strength to the church. Yes. So one of my favorite people that has been introduced in Saints Volume 2 is Anna Woodso. Mm -hmm. She's in Utah with her family and kind of getting acclimated to the culture and everything. But can you tell us a little bit more about her situation and what she and her family are doing? Yes. So she, at this point, is a single mother of, of two boys and is living in Logan. I think at the time of this chapter, she's been in Logan for about four years and she is working very, very hard to try to provide her boys with what they need and really wants them to gain an education. And so she stresses education and makes a lot of sacrifices so her children can obtain that education. And so while she's doing this, focusing on education and she's learning more about the gospel, I think it's so interesting to hear about this one principle that she hadn't learned about before. So let's listen to a clip from the book explaining what she learns and what she does about what she learns. At her church meetings, Anna came to learn and understand more about the restored gospel. She had not been taught the word of wisdom in Norway, and she continued to drink coffee and tea in Utah especially when she had to work late at night. She struggled for two months without success to give up these drinks, but one day she walked briskly to her cupboards, pulled out her coffee and tea packages, and threw them into the fire. Never again, she said. That's a great story, and it's a great example of Anna and her faith and her dedication one of the other things I like about this particular scene is it also talks about how Anna was from Norway and the ward that she was in had a number of different saints from different places around the world, a lot of Scandinavian saints, and that they would speak in their own language and translate for each other in their wards. It's just a great example of kind of the melting pot of different nationalities, different languages that you would find in a ward in Logan at that time. When I read that, I couldn't help but think Many of us who serve missions, I'm sure, who are listening to this podcast will have an experience on their mission where they taught someone the word of wisdom. And with an act of faith, like Anna, a person made a commitment. Mm -hmm. I remember teaching a man who was a smoker, and it was really, really hard. That's a very addictive thing. Mm -hmm. And everybody's experience quitting is different. So I'm not suggesting this is the only way, mm -hmm. right? But I remember I went and knocked on his door and he said, come in here, I want to show you something. And he was really excited. And he took me in his bathroom and he had cut his cigarettes lengthwise <laughs> with scissors. <laughs> and he's like, I'm done. Yeah. 
I'm just done. And he really was. It was just this commitment. Those things happen today just like they did with Anna Woodso. Mm-hmm. When someone decides to make a really significant change in their life, it's still possible for yes. us. Yes. This chapter begins with the death of John Taylor, mm-hmm. and it ends with another death. Mm-hmm. We learn about the passing of Eliza Snow. Yes. Let's talk about her life and her legacy. Yes. Well, Eliza Snow was arguably one of the most well-known and influential women in the church at that time. She was considered to be a poet, a theologian, a leader. She was someone that people looked up to for guidance and for spiritual strength. And so her influence was greatly missed. Let's remember a couple of things. So I'm, I'm going to mess this timeline up. you got to help me. But Eliza R. Snow was a member of Original Relief Society in Nauvoo. Yes. She became the sort of the de facto Relief Society president in Utah, and then she was made the General Relief Society president. Yes. She toured up and down the territory, carrying with her the minute book yep. and teaching the women how to organize. What are some of her other accomplishments? Well, I think people today know her very well as a poet and as a writer. So her influence was definitely widely felt in that way also. And there were a number of different programs that the Relief Society instituted during the time that she was president. Her influence was very widely felt. And so I remember she took the idea from Aurelia Spencer Rogers and took that to the first presidency to start the primary. Mm -hmm. You can't help but think of one of her most famous hymns, Oh My Father. Mm -hmm. She's just such a wonderful lady. And I think important to just pause for a minute and remember her and and her legacy. Mm -hmm. There's a clip from the book of a quote that she shared with some women in a meeting one time that I think would be beneficial to listen to right now. There is no sister so isolated and her sphere so narrow, but what she can do a great deal toward establishing the kingdom of God upon the earth. I just am so inspired by her legacy. Mm -hmm. And she's talking to women, I think, around the world and through all time periods. And it's just so motivating to think that no matter where we are or what our talents are, we can do so much to establish the Mm -hmm. kingdom of God. I think she's left an incredible example for us to follow. She has. And I think one thing that's also interesting in this chapter, and it was interesting as I was writing it, I spent a lot of time learning about Zina D.H. Young, who became the next president after she died. And, you know, it reminded me of what it's like. I don't know if you've ever had a calling at church where the person who held the calling before you was just beloved just and amazing star, yeah. and a rock star. And you are the next person in line, and you think to yourself, how can I ever follow in this person's footsteps? Yeah. And nobody's going to like me or it, listen to me. Or- yes, <laughs> and, and for Zina, Eliza was her dear, dear friend. They had both been plural wives of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and had lived together in the Lion House, and she was a counselor to Eliza. And so they traveled extensively together. And when she died, it was devastating to Zina. So now Zina has this responsibility. Not only is she mourning her friend, but she now has to take over and try to fill these really big shoes. And their styles were very different. So Eliza just kind of commanded respect. And I think probably was intimidating to some people. She was known as the head. When people would talk about Eliza and Zina, they would say Eliza was the head of the Relief Society and Zina was the heart. 
And Zina was a little bit more of an empathetic one-on-one type of a style that she had. And so she had to learn how to take her own talents and her own style and use that to lead the Relief Society, which she did do. Back in Samoa, we have another story with Joseph Dean. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us about that? Sure. So last time we were talking about him, he had gotten on this ship with his wife and his four-month-old baby, and they were heading out to Samoa. And the ship that they were on was not going to go all the way to the island where Samuela lived. They were going to stop at a nearby island called Tutuila. And they weren't sure how they were going to get to the next island. So they just dropped them off, essentially, you know, said, here you go, you're going to Tutuila. And hopefully you can make your way to, I think it's pronounced Nu'u. Hopefully you can find your way there. So here they are kind of covered with seawater and holding a baby. And there's all these people that they don't know a single solitary soul or how to get there. And if you think like even how you feel traveling in a foreign country where you're trying to figure out the subway or something, you know, (laughs) like I just think here you are on an island. You don't know a soul. You don't know how to get where you're supposed to go. And you have a little baby with you. And so Joseph Dean finds someone who looks like he's in charge in some way and starts trying to talk to him. Now, Joseph was pretty adept with Hawaiian. But Samoan is a very different language, and he had already discovered, he'd been trying to learn a little bit of Samoan, how different it was and how hard it was going to be to learn. So he starts talking to this man and says to him, Samuela Manoa, and tries to pronounce that and says Anu'u, where he's trying to go, and is trying to speak in Hawaiian. And then finally the man turns and looks at him and says in English, you Manoa's friend? <laughs> Which I love that. It's like, stop, you know, stop trying to speak Hawaiian. I can speak English. <laughs> and it turned out that he was friends with Samuela Manoa. And Samuela had told him to look for the deans and to bring them over to his islands. So Samuela already had prepared for them to be well taken care of. But I just love that story as an example of him trying to speak to someone and not realizing he could actually speak English. And, but then they made their way there and, and were warmly welcomed by Samuela and his wife and really hit the ground running there in Samoa and made a number of converts pretty quickly. That is such a great story. Thank you, Angela, so much for joining us today and sharing your insights and your perspectives into these people and their stories. It's my pleasure to be here. And we'd like to remind our listeners, if you have any feedback or questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org and visit our website anytime at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org to access the chapters and any other topics and videos about the things that we talk about. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.